It's Tuesday, January 11th, 1972, and if you check the local theater listings, they all seem to know that you have no intention of leaving your nice warm house to see a new movie. So, aside from the Raw Expeditions, rated G, and a new version of Kidnapped, the best G-rated movie around, says Kevin Sanders, how's that for a slap at the competition? They haven't booked any. Everything else out there is one to three years old. Dirty Harry? Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice, Joe, but hey, not all is lost. ABC TV has been running some pretty exciting promos for their new movie of the week, which airs tonight at 8.30. It's from Dan Curtis, the man behind Dark Shadows, and it's called The Night Stalker. Judge for yourself its believability, and then try to tell yourself, wherever you may be, it couldn't happen here. Those words spoken by Las Vegas news reporter Carl Kolchak in reference to the unbelievable tale he's about to tell invokes the title of a 1935 novel by Sinclair Lewis, It Can't Happen Here, a political fantasy in which a United States senator wins the 1936 presidential election and becomes this country's first fascist dictator. Kolchak's tape-recorded account begins on the evening of Sunday, March 16th. That would be 1971 with the murder of Cheryl Ann Hughes. The Night Stalker itself began shooting with a week of location shooting in Las Vegas on August 23rd, whereafter it relocated to the Goldwyn Studios in Los Angeles for two weeks of interior shooting, which wrapped on September 10th. Cheryl Hughes is described as a swing shift change girl at the Gold Dust Saloon, and as she stomps off to her death, we see her pull away from an eager young tourist who's mistaken her for a hooker. He's also mistaken her as straight, Later details will tiptoe around her identification as gay, which may seem a gratuitous detail, but it's one of many ways in which the Night Stalker depicts this country as a great collage of many different kinds of people, rather than as the highly polarized, volatile society we are today. There was still respect for death in 1972 entertainment, and when Cheryl's body is found in a trash can, it was an unusually downbeat detail for a TV movie. Robert Cobert's propulsive crime jazz score is one of the aces in this film's deck, but I've always admired its restraint in withholding music from its main titles. It's withheld from the end titles, too, which hardly ever happened in the world of made-for-TV movies. It brings a sense of seriousness, of realism, to a genre seldom at this time treated with such respect. No evidence of dependent Actor Larry Linville, either. seen at screen left, was signed to play this pathologist, Dr. McCurgie, supposedly a man of East Indian descent. Only the night before shooting, he'd been to a party that ran late and showed up with a terrible hangover. Just a matter of months later, he was cast as Major Frank Burns in the long-running CBS series based on Robert Altman's M.A.S.H. And don't talk about this to anyone. I've always found it a bit chilling that Barry Atwater's screen credit is huddled here among the others somewhat anonymously rather than crediting him with a standalone card that says, and Barry Atwater as Yano Skorzeny. Back in 1972, before the IMDB and other retrieval tools existed, he wasn't easily recognized as someone who had previously frightened us in episodes of TV's The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. 
The story may be apocryphal, but I believe it. As you see, this film was scripted by the great Richard Matheson, working from an unpublished story by Jeff Rice. How does an unpublished manuscript find its way into the hands of such a great writer? I'll tell you that story later on. Could they have cast these two characters any better? Our unlikely hero, Carl Kolchak, played by Darren McGavin, and his apoplectic Las Vegas Daily News editor, Tony Vincenzo, played by Simon Oakland. Kolchak is a seen-it-all cynic. He greets his co-workers by saying, good morning, slaves. But Oakland's casting makes Tony the voice of reason, of the rational. After all, it was he who stepped into the end of Psycho to explain to the hard facts of Norman Bates's mental illness. But it's Kolchak's hardened cynicism that makes him such a great character when he's put in the uncomfortable position of being the only person who believes that this film's murderer is a vampire. This is Jordan Rhodes as Kolchak's morgue contact, Dr. John O'Brien. Kolchak may be a controversial, even widely disliked character, but it speaks well of him that he's maintained all of the journalistic contacts that we meet along the way. They must all feel that he's represented them squarely and fairly in the past stories that he's published. Jordan Rhodes seems to have been typecast as doctors as he played them on TV's Green Acres, the original Bill Cosby show, and Owen Marshall, counselor at law. And he was cast in a non-doctor role in the TV movie, Is There a Doctor in the House? The scene at the Gold Dust Saloon introduces Kolchak's love interest, Gail Foster, played by Carol Lindley. This character is interesting because owing to television standards and practices of the time, the film couldn't come right out and say that she is a prostitute. She's presented as a friend of the late Cheryl Hughes, who also works out of the Gold Dust Saloon, and she makes the sly observation, I don't think she liked men. The fact that Gail is a hooker doesn't really tell us anything about her character. She's everything hookers usually aren't, at least in the movies. Emotionally open, nurturing, she knits and keeps a comfortable home for her lover. But the fact that she's a hooker tells us a lot about Kolchak's character. I don't say this judgmentally because his acceptance of her shows him to be a non-judgmental and compassionate fellow, uh, two things his outward presentation may not suggest. But you know that a man like Kolchak has got to love that he's getting something for free that other men have to pay for. It's not a particularly serious relationship. It's friendship with benefits, as we say today. And the fact that she works at the Gold Dust Saloon suits him too, as a journalist who is openly prospecting for the gold that will take him back to the big time. This scene introduces Claude Akins as Sheriff Warren Butcher, perfectly cast. An uncredited Edward Faulkner, best remembered for small key roles in John Wayne pictures like McClintock, The Green Berets, Hellfighters, and The Undefeated, plays the policeman. The second victim, Bonnie Reynolds, is discovered 22 feet inside an otherwise undisturbed sand pit. Look at her throat. He must have lost an awful lot of blood. Cheryl Hughes lost a lot of blood, too. You read that in the newspapers, did you? No, I didn't read that in the newspapers. The detail of blood loss is fairly witnessed here by Kolchak and later reported. Yet he is later reprimanded for not being, quote, supposed to know that, end quote. It's one of many ways in which the film hints that America's free press of the 1970s may be under greater duress from government and law enforcement than is generally known. You tell me, could it happen here? What'd he do, throw her? 
Who said Bonnie Reynolds was thrown 22 feet into that car? The coroner? I haven't heard about it. Who said this new killing is connected with the Cheryl... When Kolchak's creator, Jeff Rice, himself a former newspaper reporter, visited the set, actor Simon Oakland greeted him in character, saying, Mr. Rice, I don't ask a hell of a lot from you. Show up on time, do your work, and get it right. But where the hell do you get off going out on your own stories that weren't assigned to you? I don't like reporters who make end runs around me or go over my head to the boss. You work for me, and the sooner you get that into your head, the sooner we'll get along. Price was on the point of yelling back when he caught himself and started to laugh. Oakland confessed to researching his character by nosing around Rice's old newspaper digs at the Las Vegas Sun, where he'd made the acquaintance of Rice's former editor, Vince Anselmo, the basis for Tony Vincenzo. This anecdote comes from Mark DeWidziak's Night Stalking, an essential research source on which I'll be relying throughout this commentary. The unexplained blood murders continue on May 21st, this time a break-in at the home of Carol Hanacek, a cocktail waitress at the Bird of Paradise Cocktail Lounge. It was then, Kolchak narrates, that people stopped talking. Since George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 1968, but most importantly since the Charles Manson slayings of August 1969, scenes of home invasion became almost epidemic in horror cinema. I suspect it was intentional that the name of this victim, Carol Hanacek, seems to echo that of our investigating reporter, Carl Kolchak. It plants the subconscious suggestion that the hero and villain are now locked into a slow-motion collision course. You know, you really make me feel wanted. We've had three murders in town, Bernie. We have one... This scene, filmed on Wednesday, August 25th, poolside at the Sahara Hotel, introduces Ralph Meeker as Kolchak's closest friend, Bernie Jenks, an FBI agent, who is actually a conflation of two characters appearing in Jeff Rice's original manuscript, which was called The Kolchak Papers. Meeker and McGavin had reason to be close, were considered close themselves. They had both portrayed Mickey Spillane's popular private eye hero, Mike Hammer, back in the 1950s. Meeker in Robert Aldrich's 1955 cult classic, Kiss Me Deadly, and McGavin in the Mike Hammer TV series that ran for 78 episodes between 1958 and 1959. Jeff Rice had to some extent based Kolchak on an itinerant reporter he had known in the days when he worked as a copy boy for the Las Vegas Sun, Alan Jarlson, who had worked just about everywhere in the news trade, but never for very long. Rice's Kolchak is somewhat different to Darren McGavin's. He's got a gut, he's foul-mouthed, hard-drinking, and usually chomping on a cigar. Simon Oakland actually wouldn't be bad casting. He's also of Romanian descent, the son of East European immigrants whose given name is in fact Karel, later Americanized to Karl. This gives him another complementary parallel with his adversary, the vampire Janos Skorzeny. What makes Kolchak such a great character is that he appeals to both sides of what was then called the generation gap. There is something of the countercultural reporter in him. He's not just filing his stories, he is filing the stories of cover-ups approved by the local police and government. But there is also something about him that appeals to conservatives because he's not just doing this to tell the truth, he's doing it for reasons of self-interest. We're told that Kolchak has been booted from newspapers in Washington twice, New York three times, Chicago twice, Boston three times, all presumably for trying to get the truth past his editors. He's hell-bent on having the last laugh and coming back, as he says, in style. 
He's a complex character, a charismatic ratbag full of contradictions, panache, bad taste, and an all-American love for the goddamned capital T truth. When there was talk in later years of a possible Night Stalker remake, I thought the only actors who might be able to fill McGavin's shoes were James Woods or Dennis Miller, who were both, curiously enough, well-known as outspoken political conservatives. Today, I would probably go with Better Call Saul's Bob Odenkirk, whose character Saul Goodman, I think, owes a great deal to Carl Kolchak. We're Warren Butcher of the Sheriff's Office. Thomas Paine, this press conference introduces Kent Smith, the star of numerous Val Luton and Curtis Harrington thrillers, as Thomas Paine from the DA's office. For some reason, he's not to be confused with the DA himself. Charles McGraw as Captain Edward Masterson of the LVPD. And Larry Linville returns as our main title's pathologist, Dr. McCurgy. Jeff Rice had originally written the role of McCurgy to play himself, but when Dan Curtis replaced the film's original producer, his casting was vetoed, perhaps because Rice was not a member of the Screen Actors Guild. Thomas Paine and Edward Masterson are names that have an ironic historical provenance. Edward Masterson, 1852 to 1878, was the sheriff of Dodge City, shot to death at the age of 25. He was the brother of two gunfighters, one of them actually named Bat. Bat Masterson, so kind of a vampire connection there. Thomas Paine was one of this nation's founding fathers, an author and philosopher known for his works Common Sense, The Rights of Man, and The Age of Reason all of which promote ideas that this Thomas Paine would vigorously oppose, though he's only too happy to glide into office on the great man's good name. In 1972, the hot trend in vampire movies was to bring these creatures of the night into modern times. Of course, vampires have been climbing out of their coffins and stepping into contemporary life as long ago as Todd Browning's Dracula in 1931. But 1931 was quite a bit different to say 1971. For one thing, in 1931, vampires had yet to acquire any media presence. In 1971, the vampire's greatest protection was the tendency of ordinary people to think they only existed in the movies. In 1970, American International Pictures acquired an independent pickup called Count Yorga Vampire, and it turned out to be such a hit that even Christopher Lee's Dracula was so revived in Dracula AD 1972, quickly followed by Blackula and the Deathmaster. But the seminal energy behind this trend truly belonged to Dan Curtis, who would introduce the vampire into modern times on a daily basis on his ABC TV daytime drama Dark Shadows, Barnabas Collins, played by Canadian actor John Jonathan Frid, beginning in August 1967. Curtis was also one of the first to spearhead this trend theatrically, releasing House of Dark Shadows, a feature-length distillation of the Barnabas narrative arc in October 1970, just a few months after Count Yorga's summer spree. A common fallacy among these films is that their vampires seldom really interact with modern times. Hammer's Dracula AD 1972 didn't allow its Lord of the Vampires any opportunities to leave the unhallowed church where he held court. And apart from his attack on the inhabitants of a VW bus, 
Count Yorga seldom left his California casa. If the Night Stalker has any real genius, it's that its story is set in the most modern, the most artificial of American cities, Las Vegas, Nevada, which allows it to contrast our worst nightmares with capitalism's ripest fantasy. The Night Stalker, though made for television and not particularly graphic, is one of our great vampire movies, precisely for the reason that it's a good deal more than that. More importantly, it's a snapshot of America as it was in 1972, when Richard Nixon was president, when America's involvement in the Vietnam War was still ongoing, when American movies were never more free or more censored by the requirements of the MPAA, when hippies were cutting their hair to wage their revolutions from within the corporate structure for the first time, or at least telling themselves that, when the Watergate break-in was being plotted on the great ramp leading to this country's bicentennial. It was the America of Robert Altman's early films and Colin Higgins' Harold and Maude. Watch this movie and tell me that you don't see traces of Altman's Nashville or Bud Court's Herald in it. It's also very anti-establishment and pro-American dream, and a pointed reminder that no matter how much has changed, life in these United States is still much the same. Kent Smith is excellent as always. He and director John Llewellyn Moxie had worked together a short time before this on another ABC movie of the week, The Last Child, in which Michael Cole and Janet Margolin played an expectant couple trying to outrun a futuristic U.S. government intent on controlling overpopulation with enforced sterilization. Thank you for this important dialogue very much anticipates the stand taken by Mayor Larry Vaughn, played by Murray Hamilton in Steven Spielberg's Jaws, released three and a half years later. In the chummiest, most glad-handed way, these Las Vegas officials are less concerned with securing the public safety than with maintaining the constant influx of tourist money into their coffers. Sheriff Butcher cuts off any further direct questioning of the doctor, saying that he has a prepared statement for them in his office. Prepared, meaning that it says what they will allow it to say. Kent Smith's smile as the elevator doors close is one of the creepier moments in the film. Will you watch what you're saying? You know these guys. You could find yourself out of a job in 86 all over town. Did I go for you too, Jenks? Oh, boy, who can talk to you when you get like this? Now, listen, I'll nose around unofficially for you on anything you bring me, just between the two of us. But do me a favor and stay away from me for a few days, just for friendship's sake. Bernie Jenks seems to know that Kolchak is playing with forces that can even throw a little respectful terror into an FBI man, and the vampire isn't one of them. When this movie was made, there was a tradition of newspaper dramas and even comedies, movies like The Front Page, which established this kind of zingy banter, and also noirs like Fritz Lang's While the City Sleeps and Alexander McKendrick's Sweet Smell of Success, and even sentimental pictures like Jack Webb's 30. If you look at The Night Stalker, it actually has less in common with these films that came before, as with the films that were still to come. It's more of a forerunner of movies like All the President's Men, about Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein's investigations into the Watergate scandal, and more recently, The Post, about the Washington Post's role in breaking the story about the Pentagon Papers. It's a movie about warm people coming up against the cold considerations of big business and the desperation of the employed to remain employed. It's a vampire movie too, but this is also a movie about the kind of monsters we see every day. 
Well, actually, I was saying that I, I think that... Darren McGavin's love interest, who was about 30 at the time of filming, was born with the name Carolyn Jones, which was already claimed by the star of House of Wax, King Creole, and the Adams Family. She had previously modeled under the name Carolyn Lee, but another member of Actors' Equity was using that name, so she eventually became the sound-alike Carol Lynn Lee. An ingenue in blue denim, a replacement for the troubled Diane Varsi in Return to Peyton Place, a tempting next-door neighbor to Jack Lemon in Under the Yum Yum Tree, a tormented mother of an abducted child in Bunny Lake is Missing, and worthy of the title role in Harlow, Carol Lindley had a great 1960s and was still doing well in 1972. Later the same year, she made what was probably her signature picture, The Poseidon Adventure. Only this time... He was seen. Shots like this of Kolchak tooling around Las Vegas in his 1968 blue and rust-covered Camaro convertible were some of the earliest shot for the film. At the time, ABC TV was trying to decide what to call this picture. They started out with Jeff Rice's original title, The Kolchak Papers, but then switched to the Kolchak tapes, the story being committed to a series of cassette tapes in the framing story. But then the Anderson tapes with Sean Connery came out, putting an end to that. Believe it or not, they briefly considered fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood, before coming up with the Night Stalker. Brandon, showgirl, 25, 5 feet 8 inches tall, 125 luscious pounds, less the weight of 12 pints of blood, of course. Well, looks like Bella Lugosi's struck again. Now that just might be the first postmodernist ironic mention of Bela Lugosi in a vampire movie. There aren't many, but another would be the British goth band Bauhaus performing Bela Lugosi's Dead at the beginning of Tony Scott's The Hunger in 1983. It's one of the oddities of this film that none of the actresses playing its victims are given any screen credit, but in this brief scene, Virginia Gregg appears as the mother of victim number four. An accomplished radio actress, Gregg played her first uncredited screen role in Hitchcock's Notorious, and 15 years later recorded the voice of Norma Bates for Psycho, a role that she would also reprise in its first and second sequels. She also had a history of working with Darren McGavin on the Mike Hammer series, Carol Lindley, Hound Dog Man, and Simon Oakland, if we count Psycho. This cleverly disguised Whitman sampler box brings us to a wonderful, equally brief cameo by Peggy Rhea as Helen O'Brien, a courthouse switchboard operator whose tongue Kolchak loosens with gifts of boxed candy. She's another oral personality like Yana Skorzeny. Speaking of whom, we now get our first look at an artist's reconstruction of our vampire's visage. And the newspaper is in the hands of the vampire himself, walking through an actual casino. Believe it or not, Dan Curtis dared actor Barry Atwater to take a long stroll around one of the film's casino locations in full makeup for the better part of 45 minutes. And not one person seemed to think that he was anything out of the ordinary. Here we see the famous sign of the Sahara Lounge where Johnny Carson and his band leader Doc Severinsen were booked during their summer break from NBC's Tonight Show. 
At the time, it was unusual to see any mention of, say, NBC personalities on an ABC broadcast. The networks liked to pretend the other networks simply didn't exist. So this was a small but important breakthrough, akin to the Bela Lugosi mention a few minutes ago. Now we get our first direct view of Skorzeny's fully dilated eyes as he eyes his next victim, Shelley Forbes. This is a nicely directed sequence that packs a surprise or two. Director John Moxie was experienced in making horror films and mystery thrillers, and he and Richard Matheson would throw us an unexpected curve when Shelley sicks her dog on our would-be attacker. But even that surprise backfires on her and on us. There is a sense here, as in contemporary vampire movies, where the cross suddenly fails to have any effect, that the old weapons against the undead are no longer effective because they're not in a fairy tale anymore. Sherman Duffy of the Chicago Globe once described a reporter as follows. Socially, he fits in somewhere between a hooker and a bartender. Spiritually, he stands beside Galileo because he knows the world is round. Not that it does much good, of course, when his editor knows it's flat. Oh, Shelley Forbes has got to be his fifth victim. Look at the way her dog was killed. In adapting Jeff Rice's original work, Richard Matheson added a line to this quote from Sherman Riley Duffy, reporter for the pre-World War I Chicago Daily Journal. Neither Rice nor Duffy had anything to say about editors who believed the world was flat. I'm going to pause here for the film's most important dialogue. Allow me to blow the story up on the one hand and keep it under wraps on the other. I am tired of being the middleman, Colchak. Do you understand that? Can you understand that? What do you want, Vincenzo? A testimonial from Count Dracula? Out! Get out! What is this out, out, girl, get out game we play? This nut thinks he is a vampire. He has killed four, maybe five women. He has drained every drop of blood from every one of them. Now, that is news, Vincenzo, news. And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. You know darn well why we're soft-peddling this thing. No, tell me why. Could it be because we have been told to? Kolchak, you are an idiot. Worse, and there you have the real message tucked within this entertainment served up with all the bravado of a classic Twilight Zone episode, many of which, after all, were scripted by Richard Matheson. Vampires are the stuff of fantasy, but in this case they are a sugarcoating to a far more bitter truth, namely, the ways in which the allegedly free press was beginning to knuckle under to politicians and advertisers in the early 1970s. McGavin's Kolchak may look crazy like a paranoid crusader bent on turning the sober history of journalism into something reckless, but pause for a moment to consider what historians now tell us was really going on between the White House and journalists at this particular moment in time. Mark Feldstein's book, Poisoning the Press, Richard Nixon, Jack Anderson, and the Rise of Washington's Scandal Culture, published in 2010, reports that President Richard M. Nixon planted letters and editorials in newspapers to criticize and discredit United Features syndicate columnist Jack Anderson, a reporter dedicated to exposing his criminality and that of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover before him. Nixon, the first U.S. president to actually concoct an official hate list, went so far as to actually conduct personal surveillance on the journalist. The book says, and I quote, they looked for vulnerabilities, how they could plant poison in his aspirin bottle. They talked about how they could spike his drink, 
and they talked about smearing LSD on his steering wheel so that he would absorb it through his skin in a hallucination-crazed auto crash, end quote. On the books as White House plumbers, G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt were just waiting for the orders from senior White House aide Charles Colson, but they never came through, fortunately. Jack Anderson eventually died of complications from Parkinson's disease in 2005 at the age of 83. Now, you may think I'm drifting a little too far afield, but believe it or not, there is a connection between Jack Anderson and the Night Stalker. In 1965, a protege of Anderson's, Leslie H. Witten, published a novel entitled Progeny of the Adder. It was actually published as part of Doubleday and Company's long-running crime club selections. It's set in then-contemporary Washington, D.C., where Detective Harry Picard becomes embroiled in a series of murders that find a series of call girls with known connections to the political elite are found dumped in the Potomac, drained of their blood. Picard is a somewhat stereotypical cop, divorced, often drunk, and falling in love with Susie, a divorced policewoman with child who agrees to go undercover to bait the killer. Sebastian Pollier, a man of hypnotic powers and East European origin whose chain of homicides and escapes leads back, incredibly, over hundreds of years. That's right, Sebastian Pollier is a vampire. Witten wrote the book in five-page chapters, encouraging the reader to gulp it down, and it's punctuated by two extended set pieces that run well over 30 pages each. These depict Picard's attempt to corner Polier in an old derelict farmhouse in Derwood, Maryland, and the final chapter as he rushes to save his beloved from the vampire's clutches. It's exciting stuff which creates a vivid backdrop of Washington, D.C. and the muted gray post-Kennedy years, and it's especially good in its sketches of secondary characters. It gives everyone the dignity of a moment's deep attention. And where does Picard get his clues? From bartenders, hoteliers, used car salesmen, just as Kolchak does in The Night Stalker. The connections between Les Witten's Progeny of the Adder and Jeff Rice's The Kolchak Papers become still more interesting if we continue to dig, as I promised to do after another scene or two. I have to interrupt myself here to comment that one of the stranger recurring attributes of these modern-day vampire movies of the early 70s was the obligatory scene in which our hero must reluctantly acquaint himself with the actual folklore of vampirism, because books, as people knew then, were a more reliable source of knowledge than what we're told by the movies. Everyone seems to know all about movie vampires, but for some reason, they all must turn to ancient books and woodcuts to learn the ways in which such creatures can be vanquished. This is, after all, a newspaper man's story, so this veneration for print as the backbone of our civilization is well-placed. Which brings us to another of the film's fine set pieces, Jano Skorzeny's second attempt at robbing a hospital's blood bank. Here, we get our first completely unobstructed views of our tall, lanky vampire. Barry Atwater born Garrett Atwater in May 1918, which would have made him about 53 years old at the time of filming, a bit older even than either Bela Lugosi or Boris Karloff when they played the roles that brought them middle-aged stardom. Tragically, Atwater would live only for several more years, succumbing to a stroke in May 1978, just a week after his 60th birthday. In his relatively short career, he managed a wealth of television appearances and racked up at least a few immortal roles. In the Twilight Zone episode, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, 
in the Outer Limits episode, Corpus Earthling, where he's arguably scarier than he is here, and the Star Trek episode, The Savage Curtain, in which he played a Vulcan. For these action scenes, Atwater was doubled by the film's stunt coordinator, Dick Zeiger. I believe Dick also took the famous stunt fall through the high window that we're about to see. Watch the lower right corner of your screen and you'll see the stunt's air cushion billowing up into frame as we fade down and up into Act 4. Act 4 resumes with Skorzeny's impressive standoff against teams of armed policemen. This exciting sequence required a lot of sensitive stunt work involving police cars, motorcycles, and actors working without any body armor. The set turned out to be a dangerous place even for the director to stand. John Will and Moxie told Mark DeWidziak, quote, when we did that shot outside the hospital, a motorcycle was supposed to come sliding to a halt in front of the camera. Well, it got away from the driver and started skidding toward me. I thought that was it. I thought this was going to come right to and slice us in two. Luckily, we hit a pipe that was sticking up and stopped just short of us. You know, with all the stunts in that film, that was the only thing that came close to going wrong. End quote. And you just saw it happen right there. Okay, now back to the backstory that I promised you about Jeff Rice. Let's start with Jeff Rice. The following information generally comes from Rice's own autobiographic, The Kolchak Story. Born in February 1944 in Providence, Rhode Island, Rice was in his mid-teens when Universal Shock Theater Package first came to television, and he became a huge fan. He had begun acting in school productions at the age of eight and later majored in journalism at the University of Oregon, in drama at the University of Southern California, and in English at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. After working for a while at the Gallery Theater in Las Vegas, he got a job as a copy boy at the Las Vegas Sun. He was on staff there for two years, during which time he was fired 14 times by his boisterous editor, the prototype for Tony Vincenzo. He ended up settling into a job as an ad agency copywriter in the late 60s, and it was during his free time that he began to pool his colorful experiences and acquaintances into a horror novel that he called the Kolchak Papers. He finished it in October 1970. It wasn't long before Rice brought his manuscript to the attention of an agent experienced in film and television sales, the friend of a friend of a friend. He was told that the Kolchak papers had great commercial promise and that the project might well find a movie producer before it found a publisher. Oddly enough, at no point did the agent agree to represent Rice, but Rice let his defenses down because one of his personal heroes happened to be on the agent's client list, Richard Matheson. He authorized this agent to proceed with his plan to sell the property, and as early as December 7th, he got it into the hands of Alan Epstein, the man in charge of ABC's Movie of the Week. What Rice didn't know was that his still unpublished, then unprotected work was being used by the agent to stir up new business for Matheson. Matheson was actually quite hot at ABC because he had scripted Duel, a TV movie directed by newcomer Steven Spielberg, which had catapulted him into a feature film career. Copyright laws were somewhat different then than they are now, but Rice, feeling nervous, arranged for his Kolchak papers to be copyright protected on January 1st, 1971. Less than two weeks later, he signed a proper agent-client agreement, but he didn't learn until sometime later that his contract was drawn up only a matter of hours after ABC contracted Richard Matheson to write the teleplay. 
Rice was given no chance to write a draft of his own. He was signed to the project as a location consultant, and the deal was for one picture only, meaning that he would have to be paid and repaid in the event of any sequels. And of course, the Night Stalker proved very lucrative in that respect. Rice did not blame his hero, Richard Matheson, for the way things worked out, and he considered his eventual teleplay a tight masterpiece of editing and construction. At this time, ABC had signed Everett Chambers to produce the film, and it was Chambers who screen-tested Rice for the role of Dr. McCurgy and cast him in the role. Just as The Night Stalker was going into production, ABC TV received notification from American International Pictures that they would be filing a lawsuit against the production. They had somehow become aware of the project and had taken notice of too many similarities to a property of their own, Progeny of the Adder, which was then in the planning stages. It had been scripted by a talented fellow who had been cranking out scripts for them for the past 10 years, a writer by the name of Richard Matheson. Jeff Rice insisted that he'd never read the Leslie Witten source novel, but AIP counter-insisted that the novel's five years of being in print gave him, quote, implied access, end quote. But Rice had based his novel on his personal experience of conducting investigative journalism in the city of Las Vegas, and he threatened to subpoena half the city to support his claims, at which point AIP backed down, and at which point ABC replaced Everett Chambers as producer with Dan Curtis. On Curtis's watch, Jeff Rice was replaced on the cast list by Larry Linville. As it happens, had he known that Dan Curtis was going to produce, Richard Matheson might have skipped the opportunity to script The Night Stalker altogether. He told Mark DeWidziak, quote, I had an antipathy toward Curtis from the beginning because when my war novel, The Beardless Warriors, came out, someone offered me a blind offer of $10,000 for the movie rights, which I turned down in a rage. Then I found out that it was Curtis. So when I first met him at ABC, I was very cold to him. I didn't realize at the time that I was risking my life. He had such a temper that he could have leaped across the room and torn my throat out. And he might have, if he hadn't respected my work so much." End quote. It should also be said that Matheson was insistent that everything that went into his first Kolchak script was directly inspired by the world Jeff Rice had written into his novel. He said, the story was all there, the structure was there, and that's what got everybody excited." End quote. However, regardless of Matheson's enthusiasm, Jeff Rice continued to find himself cut out of the project he was responsible for originating. When the title generated its first press releases, he noticed that his name had been carefully removed from all of the advanced publicity material. A revised version of his Kolchak paper's manuscript was soon published in paperback, but his name was hugely eclipsed on the cover by that of Richard Matheson. The story of its revision, and who might have done that work, has never been revealed. You would think that if anyone would have noticed the similarities between Progeny of the Adder and The Night Stalker, it would have been Richard Matheson. But, really, he was only acting as a professional writer, knowing perfectly well that it wasn't his job to blow the whistle on possible infringements, and that not every script ends up going before the cameras. AIP never did make a film with Progeny of the Adder. However, they did make a film called Scream and Scream Again, which had been released a year before this particular confusion. Set in London, it was the story of a series of blood-draining murders of young women traced to a modern-day vampire killer who was eventually discovered to be a composite. 
a kind of stem cell blood-feeding android manufactured by Vincent Price. With its gritty emphasis on police procedure, Scream and Scream Again, based on a 1967 novel called The Disorientated Man by Peter Saxon, the pen name of Stephen D. Francis, is actually more like Progeny of the Adder than the Night Stalker is, and even including the policewoman who goes undercover at a nightclub to attract the vampire. It's a crazy sequence of dinks, all this, but as the addition of Scream and Scream Again into the equation proves, there was just something in the zeitgeist that was being expressed and expressed again. As for Leslie H. Whitten, it isn't known if he ever filed a personal complaint against the Night Stalker or ABC TV for their supposed infringement on his novel Progeny of the Adder. However, and this is interesting, later in the same year as the Night Stalker telecast, on September 26, 1972, the ABC Movie of the Week ran another horror movie, this one entitled Moon of the Wolf. It starred David Jansen and Barbara Rush and was directed by Daniel Petrie. Oh, and it was also based on a 1967 novel by Leslie H. Witten. Jeff Rice died on July 1st, 2015, having contributed an indelible character to our popular culture. Les Whitten died a year and a half later, on December 2nd, 2017. He was acclaimed by his mentor, Jack Anderson, yes, that Jack Anderson, to be the best reporter in the country. And he went on to write many more well-received, not to mention published novels. And Stephen King included Progeny of the Adder on his list of essential horror novels, with an asterisk denoting a work of particular importance. I need to go back and make a few comments about the previous press conference scene. The police have now identified the killer as a man named Janos Skorzeny, who is believed to have been born in 1899, so only about 20 years older than Barry Atwater himself. It's mentioned that he passed himself off as Dr. Paul Belasco during the post-war years, which is interesting since Bela Lugosi's own family name was Belasco. The surname Skorzeny likely derives from Otto Skorzeny, a six-foot-four, scar-faced assassin who was a lieutenant colonel in Adolf Hitler's SS. For some reason, the powers that be simply aren't having any of Kolchak's vampirism conclusions which is one of the ways this film shows us how much our world has changed in somewhat less than half a century. Today, we know that it takes all kinds of nuts to make a world, and there are such things as blood fetishism, blood play, vampire cosplay, and even delusions of vampirism going on out there. These subjects have been treated in contemporary vampire fiction, beginning with Simon Raven's Doctors Wear Scarlet, 1960, and Theodore Sturgeon's Some of Your Blood, 1961, which helped to inspire George A. Romero's 1977 masterpiece, Martin, and my own first published novel, Throat Sprockets, which began in 1988 as a graphic novel and was finished as a traditional novel in 1994. But in the context of 1971-72 America, the suits in charge seem to be resisting any acknowledgement that such kinkiness exists in the world, as if the truth might somehow endanger their own hold on political power. In Kent Smith's Thomas Paine silences Kolchak at the conference, he ends his menacing tirade with the words, you dig, as if he's seeing him as some kind of loose cannon beatnik, rather than as a responsible reporter. This poolside scene was filmed on the last night of production, September 9th, on the Columbia Ranch location. 
Jeff Rice was present and angered some people on set when he suddenly broke etiquette by conferring directly with the director that something was wrong about the upcoming close-up of Barry Atwater. Fortunately, John Moxie conceded that Mr. Rice had a valid point, namely that Yano Skorzeny had just been hauled out of a swimming pool, so Barry Atwater needed to look every bit as drenched as his stuntman. The actors playing the cops dutifully scooped up helmets of pool water and dumped them on the obliging actor who grimaced at Rice with bared fangs, saying, Thanks, I needed that. We've just seen Janos Skorzeny doing a number of things that your stereotypical Hollywood vampires never do. Bela Lugosi's Count Dracula never had to confront a squad of armed policemen never really had demonstrated feats of super strength either. His great weapon was hypnosis, which was portrayed as a supernatural gift, not unlike the ability to turn into a bat or a wolf. Surprisingly, Janos wasn't the first to take a dip in a swimming pool and come up smiling. Such a scene was rather desperately incorporated into the padded TV version of Stephanie Rothman's Bloodbath, which was called Track of the Vampire, 1966. Formidable strength is commonly associated with Christopher Lee's Dracula in the Hammer films, but was first introduced in Robert Siodmak's Son of Dracula, 1943, with Lon Chaney Jr. in the role. It's been easy for the offices behind law enforcement up to now to ignore Kolchak's cockamamie late late show theories, but now they've been witness to facts that cannot be explained. Captain, you have two choices. Either he was shot or your entire police department is blind. Ed, let's admit it. We had the man, had him cornered, and we couldn't hold him. Let Kolchak have his say. Oh, uh, before I do, is it agreed that in return for my help, you will grant me the exclusive rights to the entire story? Uh, well, let's say it's agreeable if we decide to follow your suggestions regarding the suspect. Fine, fine, because if you don't follow my suggestions, you're gonna be chasing your suspect till doomsday. Kolchak, just get on with it. Of course. The public victory for Skorzeny against the police force becomes a victory for Kolchak, who now finds himself in the enviable position of being the only guy in this by-the-book world who knows anything of the relevant folklore concerning of how to dispatch a vampire. Each man in the field. When Kolchak reaches inside his little blue bag of help for these flummoxed officials, he produces a silver crucifix and a wooden stake, which may remind you that producer Dan Curtis had already covered similar ground in his 1970 film House of Dark Shadows in a scene in which the vampiress Carolyn Stoddard, played by Nancy Barrett, is cornered by police in the Collinwood pool house and brutally staked. This film, however, goes a bit further by pointing out that the law is not set up to help the agents of the cross, and here is where we find the bite in the story. In your broad experience, it's called premeditated murder. It's the only way you're going to stop him. It's not just premeditated murder. It robs the perpetrator of his right to due process of law. Your nighttime chases from now on, too, gentlemen. Uh, the only hope you have is to spot Skorzeny and then track him back to where he lives and wait until sunrise before finishing him off. Uh, he's only vulnerable during the day. At night, he's much too strong. Yes, gentlemen, I hate to say this, <laughs> but it looks as if we have a real live vampire on our hands. Vampires may be real, but if they are, we're in deep trouble because reality is the abode of the law. 
I think this aspect was something that the Count Yorga films were the hey. first to notice. It's rather a bad omen when Kolchak's best friend wants to be part of this private powwow, too. Kolchak is blinded by his own smugness here. When the officials come back from their rhubarb session, the terms they lay out for him actually telegraph the turn that things are going to take. They are leaving him absolutely no opportunity to win, but he's too giddy, too quixotic to face such facts. The one thing he won't do is depart from established police procedures. If feasible, Skorzeny is to be taken alive and held for trial. Trial? That's right, trial. <laughs> trial. All right, in return for what? You'll get the exclusive rights of the story. Good. Uh, when the blackout is lifted. Uh, yeah, any other conditions? Uh, one more. What's that? If it turns out you're wrong, you're to be out of town in 12 hours. Take it or leave it. Kolchak is enjoying his moment of vindication too much to notice, but he's now in even deeper trouble because by entering into a deal with these men to ensure his exclusive coverage of the story, he's gotten into bed with a group of warm bloods who hate him in a very personal way for portraying them as fools. And we will see in the end that they will take great pleasure in robbing him of his livelihood and everything in his miserable life that he really cares about. If you go back and watch this scene again closely, you'll notice that nowhere does Kolchak succeed in shaking hands with anyone. Maybe this is a lesson that he needs to learn, because Kolchak's only real stake in this case is getting the hell out of town, as his exit from the building proves. Watch out, you great big wonderful big apple. Kolchak's coming back. It's me, Crawford! This is one of very few shadow-in-the-backseat scenes in my experience that raises any hackles, but it's still a cheat. This is the second appearance by wonderful character actor Elisha Cook Jr. as another of Kolchak's many contacts, Mickey Crawford. You must remember him from the Maltese Falcon, Phantom Lady, Don't Bother to Knock, and House on Haunted Hill, just to name a few. The same year that he made this, Cookie, as his friends called him, played an ill-fated mortuary worker in Blackula also keep the police from arriving before dawn, which I knew they'd do if they got the chance, no matter what I told them. Kolchak's voiceover performs the service of taking the FBI, the police, and the DA's office somewhat off the hook, because he admits that it was he himself who wanted some exclusivity on the site, the freedom to break and enter, to take exclusive photos, even to promote himself to hero by bringing an end to the case before anyone else could get there. In short, if they arrived too late to confirm Kolchak's version of things, it would be his own damn fault. Remarkably, especially for a made-for-TV movie, the next seven minutes or so, roughly one-tenth of the entire running time, is played completely without dialogue or narration. But the music and sound effects work in this segment is captivating. Stephen King, in his book Danse Macabre, 
Describe the Night Stalker is one of the best films ever made for TV. That book was first published in 1981, but in 1975, some years after this film was first broadcast, he published his second novel, Salem's Lot. The novel, which remains one of King's most beloved, was his stab at writing a modern-day vampire novel. To be honest, I haven't read it, but I have seen Toby Hooper's made-for-TV adaptation of 1979, and its layer of the vampire, the old Marston House, is particularly reminiscent of the place Kolchak is breaking into now. It's worth remembering, too, that the film's vampire, Mr. Barlow, played by Reggie Nalder, was patterned after Max Schreck's Nosferatu of 1922, too abhorrent to conduct his own business, and therefore had to rely on a more presentable representative, Richard Straker, played by the urbane James Mason. This house, I believe, had a tremendous impact on the shape that horror cinema assumed in its immediate wake. If you look at films like Vampires, the José Ramón Larraz film, or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you see places like this, an atmospheric extension of the villain. It's even more true of Rice's original story, which describes it as a cinderblock ranch house out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by forbidding chain-link fencing. That's very Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Of course, it's nothing new for a hero to trespass on a vampire's property in the hope of staking him during his daylight rest, but here, Kolchak, in his eagerness to get the story, is disregarding the very advice that he just doled out to the city's officials. He is invading the vampire's turf after dark. This in itself makes the sequence almost unbearably suspenseful. But what is chilling about it is that this is a suburban house, from the outside, a house like many, whose interior reflects its owner. All that we have seen of Janos Skorzeny so far has been a tall, thin, lanky man with dark hair, dilated eyes, and abnormal strength. He's actually very much, as Leslie Witten describes his vampire, Sebastian Polier in Progeny of the Adder. Tall, lanky, always dressed in black clothes, his skin of appalling pallor, his eyes unnerving and hypnotic. His breath is also said to be so bad that people are aware of his approach even before he enters a room. In this respect, Skorzeny's house is his breath. It is putrid, devoid of any artifact that might make it more of a home. There is also backstory that we are invited to assemble from the pieces Kolchak discovers on the premises. He finds a refrigerator stocked with stolen blood and a dresser drawer harboring elements of disguise. We never see Skorzeny demonstrating this talent, but he's evidently experienced as a master of disguise. The false mustaches and such also plant in our minds, I think, an interesting element of doubt, because disguises are, after all, the ruses of mortal men, hardly the province of a creature from folklore possessed with the powers of bodily transformation. As Kolchak climbs this moody staircase to the upstairs floor, director John Llewellyn Moxie takes the opportunity to let the low-angled lighting take full sway for a moment.
Interesting, isn't it, how many shadows in this house assume the form of crucifixes? It must pose quite a problem for the homeowner. This is probably a good time to tell you a bit about the director of this film, John Llewellyn Moxie. He was born on February 26, 1925, in Argentina, and he joined the British film industry in what was then the accustomed way as an editing room assistant, working his way up to assistant director on various B-movies directed by the likes of John Baxter and Blood of the Vampire's Henry Cass. He began directing television in the mid-1950s on London Playhouse and the Canadian series The Adventures of Tugboat Annie with Minerva Uricale. It was in 1960 that he directed his first feature, The City of the Dead, also known as Horror Hotel, starring Christopher Lee and Betta St. John. Produced by a company called Vulcan Productions, its brace of producers included Max Rosenberg and Milton Sabotsky, who subsequently allied themselves under the shingle of Amicus Productions, whose output of quality horror features made them second only to Hammer in the UK in the 1960s. However, they never worked with John Moxie again. He had become very comfortable in the television industry, working on series like Coronation Street, Zed Cars, and the Edgar Wallace Mystery Theater, whose episodes also had theatrical play as B-movies. Among these were Death Trap with Barbara Shelley, Ricochet with Patrick McGee and Virginia Wetherill, and Face of a Stranger with Gene Marsh. His foothold in Edgar Wallace gave him the opportunity to direct the English version of a German-produced Wallace film known as Circus of Fear or Psycho Circus, also starring Christopher Lee. In 1967, he directed a remake of Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder for British television starring Lawrence Harvey and Diane Cilento. He directed seven episodes of The Saint starring Roger Moore before relocating to America to direct such shows as Run for Your Life with Ben Gazzara, the name of the game, and Judd for the Defense. Almost immediately, ABC hired him to begin directing made-for-TV movies, The House That Would Not Die, about witchcraft in the Amish country, with Barbara Stanwyck, Escape, with Christopher George and William Wyndham, about a scientist working on creating artificial life in his laboratory, The Last Child, which I mentioned earlier, a Taste of Evil, also with Barbara Stanwyck and Roddy McDowell, this one a thriller scripted by Hammer scribe Jimmy Sangster, and an espionage thriller called The Death of Miette, whose cast included Doug McClure, Richard Basehart, and Darren McGavin. So Moxie had previous experience of working with McGavin, and you can see the comfort that they had working with one another in his breezy performance here. This film was so well received that Moxie was immediately signed to work once again from a Richard Matheson script, this one called The New House, an episode of the NBC series Circle of Fear produced by William Castle and hosted by Sebastian Cabot. Moxie continued directing through 1991, mostly mystery and suspense vehicles, retiring after completing 18 episodes of Murder, She Wrote. Of all the ideas put forward by this film, the one involving this character was by far the most radical. This abductee, Shelley Forbes, the woman who sicked her dog on Skorzeny earlier, is essentially being kept by him as his own personal blood warmer. 
Considering the state of TV standards and practices of the time, this was extreme horror, and it probably only made the cut because of a line looped into Kolchak's discovery of the woman in the earlier scene. He murmurs, his own private blood bank, a line which implies, incorrectly, that she's merely giving blood. But think about it, if Skorzeny was merely draining her, why steal blood? Why keep all of those bottles in the refrigerator? Why chill it when he can drink it warm from the throat whenever he likes? Skorzeny enters the room carrying a blood bottle fresh from the refrigerator, proving my point. This woman's plight is extremely horrific. She's been abducted by a vampire who has hooked her up to receive the stored blood of other people, some of them perhaps his own previous murder victims, and it comes into her body ice cold. She has to warm it up by allowing it to pass through her arms, her heart, her brain. It's a shame that the actress giving this performance was given no screen credit because she's pitch perfect. This shot gives us our only glimpse of Skorzeny's thought process. Clearly he knows that Kolchak is in the room. We expect he might burst in on Kolchak, which would be frightening, but it would also be sudden and thus over quickly. Moxie milks the situation a bit longer by having Skorzeny prepare a surprise attack, turning the knob carefully and having Kolchak notice. Believe it or not, when this film first played television, ABC TV featured this scene in all of their promotional ads. It's one of the movie's great gotcha moments, but fortunately, they didn't quite spoil it. It still played beautifully in context. I think it's important to remember that this scene was filmed at a time when other attempts to modernize vampire cinema were incorporating some revisionist thinking about religion. As early as 1967, Christopher Lee found himself opposed by an atheist hero in Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, and when he was unable to pray over the body of the staked vampire, Dracula was able to wrench the wood from a gaping chest wound and hurl it insolently at the hero. In 1970, when Count Yorga was confronted with the cross in Count Yorga Vampire, he enjoyed a historic moment in which the vampire laughed at it and the assumption that it had any power over him at all. But here, Skorzeny plays by more traditional rules. His flinching from the cross, Kolchak's ability to control his movements by wielding it, is actually the most persuasive evidence we get that he is a real vampire. The final showdown between Skorzeny and Kolchak is frankly derivative. There is no way you can be at all knowledgeable about horror films and not see this. But we must remember that the film was made at a more naive time, when the films it drew upon were generally less available to people. As I mentioned earlier, these feats of great strength were the province of Lon Chaney Jr. in 1943's Son of Dracula.
And at this point, the film is recreating a moment between Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee from the climax of Terence Fisher's Horror of Dracula, 1958, when the vampire nearly overcomes Van Helsing and comes close to placing his bite on him. In this case, Kolchak is saved not by a sudden burst of energy, but by the arrival of his FBI crony, Bernie Jenks. Now, another scene borrowed from Son of Dracula as Kolchak empties a pistol into the unaffected scores in it. In the Cheney film, the bullets not only pass through him, but they strike and kill the woman standing behind him. And now the piece de resistance as Darren McGavin serves up the poor man's variation on Van Helsing's triumphant table run at the end of Horror of Dracula, when Peter Cushing pulls a heavy curtain down, allowing sunlight to stream in upon the vampire. The idea was not part of Jimmy Sangster's original script for Horror of Dracula, but was suggested by Peter Cushing, who had seen his friend, the actor Lewis Hayward, do it in the 1940s swashbuckler The Son of Monte Cristo, a wonderful film, by the way, and one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite movie sequels. What is fairly remarkable in these last moments of Viano Skorzeny's long life is that Barry Atwater is able to invest them with some genuine pathos. This is actually one of the more remorseless movie vampires, a man whose entire story consists of nothing but one long selfish reign of evil. But suddenly, in the full rush of daylight, he looks so diminished, and the sounds he makes are so horribly vulnerable and pathetic. It draws compassion from us that he never felt for his victims. The final expression on his face, too, as Kolchak stakes him is unforgettably pathetic. And just then, Sheriff Butcher and his men burst in, just in time to catch Kolchak in the act of what the law describes as premeditated murder. Matheson's original script supposedly included the usual special effect shot of Skorzeny decomposing into a skeleton, but ABC TV's standards and practices red-penciled this. Ultimately, it was a smart omission, as a decomposition scene would have certified Skorzeny as a bona fide vampire, whereas the film as it stands leaves us at least a little unsure. Audiences tend not to like ambiguity, I'm told, but ambiguity is what keeps a movie alive, in my mind, and ready to be watched time and time again. Oh, baby, you're gonna love New York City. Honey, after the story hits... A brief moment of triumph for Kolchak before the rug is pulled out from under him. He has his story. He's proposed marriage to the woman he loves, obviously, something she has never seriously considered possible. And he tells the universe Kolchak's coming back in style, not realizing that he will never see Gale or even this apartment ever again. As the optimism of the late 1960s ended with the 1968 assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy, continued through the thuggish violence surrounding the Democratic National Convention Chicago venue as it sought a replacement for its murdered candidate, and darkened still more through the murders of Kent State student protesters by members of the National Guard in 1970, the movies began to respond by introducing downbeat, sometimes despairing finales. This is one of the rare cases when a TV movie joined to that mournful chorus. Vampires, blood drinking, immortality, these are the things of fantasy for most people. Karl Kolchak dared to expose them as the stuff of reality, and for his efforts, his own most cherished dreams are trashed. All that he earns for his efforts is a ghost-written, government-approved story, and an off-the-record testimonial from his editor, Tony Vincenzo. Kolchak, you're one hell of a reporter. 
Bernie, what did you... Uh... Is your name Carl Kolchak, and do you reside in the city of Las Vegas? Well, you know my name's Carl Kolchak. Well, what's going on? Carl Kolchak, you're under arrest on the charge of murder. The state requires that you be informed that you have the right to remain silent. You see? <laughs> no. Oh, no. No chance. You're not going to pull that one on me. <laughs> Kolchak! You are under arrest. I wanted to mention that the director of photography on this film was French-born Michel Hugo, who had previously shot Bob Rafelson's Monkeys film Head and Jacques Demy's The Model Shop, as well as some 23 episodes of Mission Impossible. That's where he and John Lowell and Moxie first worked together. Aside from some errors of haste, this is as handsome a piece of work as you'll find in TV movies of this period, and it says a lot for his work that this film now rates a 4K restoration. Hugo's other features include The April Fools, RPM, Bless the Beasts and Children, Earth 2, Trouble Man, The Spook Who Sat by the Door, Ode to Billy Joe, and the last film produced by William Castle, Bug. He died in 2010 at the age of 80 in the city of Las Vegas, Nevada. Ranting and raving about this Gorsney being some kind of a vampire, and you had to save the world. And that, Mr. Kolchak, is murder one. Now, if you plead insanity, you might get lucky, but I promise you this you'll be committed to an asylum for the rest of your life. I pull your fat out of the fire and you do this. Carl. Will you just sit down a minute and listen to them? Bernie, you were there! Carl, just listen. Ralph Meeker's performance as Bernie Jenks hints at something still darker that has happened behind the scenes, happened directly to him to ensure his cooperation with this betrayal. the command of Sheriff Warren A. Butcher, 45, surrounded the home of Janos Skorzeny, a fugitive from a federal warrant, and in a pitch-gun battle, were forced to kill him. Never. You'll never get away with it. What's to stop me? You're gonna stop yourself, Kolchak. Because if you open your mouth, we'll find you, bring you back, use this warrant, and put you away forever. And so a man who once had a shot at New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Boston, and now Las Vegas, sees his kingdom shrunk to three shabby suitcases. She's not there, Carl. What have you done with her? Nothing. We just asked the young lady if she'd be good enough to leave town. She's an undesirable element, Kolchak, and we don't want undesirable elements in Las Vegas. So that's how it is. His work is trash, he's trash, and she's trash, in the official view of things. What do you think? It couldn't happen here? Or put it this way, what happens here stays here. Carl, there's nothing I can do. Carl, you let me know where you end up, huh? Yeah, sure, Bernie, I'll keep Richard it. Matheson and his wife were vacationing with their children while this film was in production in Las Vegas, and they paid a visit to the set. Matheson recalled to Mark DeWidziak, 
quote, I was talking to Darren McGavin and his wife, and I noticed several colored pages in his script. Now, this usually means changes, so I thought, uh-oh, they've changed everything in the script. So I left in a rage. I didn't want to know what they did with it. But when I finally saw the film, I realized they hadn't changed that much. They added a scene or two, but fundamentally it was exactly the same, and I was utterly delighted." In 2003, Gauntlet Press published Richard Matheson's Night Stalker scripts, a limited hardcover, including his original teleplays for The Night Stalker, The Night Strangler, and most tantalizing of all, his script for the unproduced third Kolchak adventure, The Night Killers, co-written with William F. Nolan. All three scripts appear exactly as Matheson submitted them, so you can compare a viewing of the films to the pages of this book and see where his work was altered and what material may have been added. That is, if you can afford the book, it was $150 new, and now goes for prices as high as $400. And now you might find it difficult to because there is still one fact that cannot be buried. After the death of Janos Skorzeny, he and all of his victims were immediately cremated. Why? Remember the legend? All those who die from the bite of the vampire will return as a vampire, unless destroyed first. So think about it and try to tell yourself, wherever you may be, in the quiet of your home, in the safety of your bed, try to tell yourself it couldn't happen here. <laughs> this is the master stroke to me, Kolchak's almost zen-like laughter as he tosses his manuscript onto the table. Maybe he's just pleased to have finished it to his satisfaction, but after all he has lost, how can he look back and laugh? It raises the question, have we been a captive audience all this time to a cleverly calculated work of fiction, like the Kolchak papers? Well, of course we have, but given those warnings that he's invoked from Sinclair Lewis, who really knows? Things we never expected may await us just around the corner, and may have been in the works as long as 40 or more years ago. It seems entirely appropriate that a film as character-driven as this should end with curtain calls for its principal players. Not only does it remind us of their good work, but it replays some of the film's most memorable shots. A welcome treat, especially in the days before home video. To the utter surprise of number three network ABC, The Night Stalker became their highest ever rated TV movie, even outperforming the bar-raising Emmy award-winning Brian song. According to Nielsen Ratings Reports, one out of every three Americans tuned in, roughly 75 million viewers, making it the fifth biggest television broadcast of that year. Overnight, it became one of the best-known horror films in history, and its numbers wouldn't seriously be challenged until the release of The Exorcist a couple of years later. In concluding, I'd like to thank Mark DeWidziak, David J. Scow, and Stephen Bissett for their respective input. I urge you to track down Mark's books about Kolchak, wherein you'll find a wealth of additional background stories about the making of this film and others. Join me again for my commentary about this film's excellent sequel, The Night Strangler. I'm Tim Lucas, saying, see you in Seattle. And as always, thanks for watching with me.